Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Normal programming has been suspended. And we now join Martin Lewis in the news studio. This is BBC Television from London. Diana, Princess of Wales, has died after a car crash in Paris. The French government announced her death just before five o'clock this morning. Buckingham Palace confirmed the news shortly afterwards. Normal programmes have been suspended while we bring you the latest developments throughout the morning. She didn't feel like she received the love that she wanted, but instead of being resentful, instead of being angry about it, you saw her express herself through loving strangers, through loving people on their way out, people on their deathbed, people that were sick. Now there is confirmation that Diana, Princess of Wales, has died. She died at 4 a.m. after going into cardiac arrest. That, according to doctors at the hospital in Paris. My favorite memory of Diana is her laughter. She would laugh to such an extent, and she would go on laughing almost to the point where we'd forgotten what we were laughing about, but it would just be the laugh, you know how the laughter takes over. She was so funny. I mean, very quick, the sharp wit when she was free. Diana, Princess of Wales is dead. Welcome to episode seven of The Firm, Blood, Lies and Royal Succession. I'm your host, Jonathan Locke. In this episode, we're going to examine what was arguably the most turbulent period of Queen Elizabeth II's 70-year reign, the shocking death of her daughter-in-law, Diana, Princess of Wales. This was the first time the Queen had made a misstep. And that's a huge statement. She'd been Queen since 1953. When that happened, she put the family before the duty because it almost cost the monarchy. It literally almost cost the monarchy because there was almost people saying, get rid of it. The royal family acted as if they had blinders on and did not consider that the public needed what they really wanted. The public wanted to share the grief with the family. They wanted to be able to connect, okay? And the queen did not give them a mechanism to connect. Diana died in the early hours of August 31st, 1997, when the car she was traveling in smashed into a pillar in the Pont de l'Alma Tunnel, Paris. She was just 36 years old. Also killed were her driver, Henri Paul, and Dodie Fayette, with whom she was romantically linked. Jacqueline Roth, executive editor of TheRoyalObserver.com, and royal commentator Kinsey Schofield talk us briefly through her last moments. Diana and Dodie had been vacationing on his yacht in the south of France and were spending a night in Paris. They were supposed to be staying at the Ritz Hotel, which was owned by Dodie's father, Mohamed Al-Fayed, but at the last minute changed their minds and decided to drive to Dodie's apartment instead. Diana was, at the time, the undisputedly most famous woman in the world, and her relationship with Dodie front-page news. 
A single photograph of the princess could net tens of thousands of pounds, and her every move was followed by a pack of paparazzi. It was absolutely crazy. And so when Diana and Dodie left the hotel that night, all the paparazzi followed, chasing the couple on mopeds. With Dodie's driver Henri Paul at the wheel, the couple sped off in their Mercedes, hardly pursued by the press. And then, tragedy struck. Henri Paul was exceeding the speed limit immensely. There is reports that he clipped a vehicle to get away from him. But then he crashed into the tunnel and all the paparazzi followed. And we know that instead of calling police, the majority of them took photos. Diana was conscious very briefly after the accident. I believe Dodie died immediately. Their bodyguard in the front seat lived. Trevor Reese Jones, I believe his name is. Henri Paul died instantly. The driver who was intoxicated. The accident happened shortly after midnight, local time. And after being taken to hospital, Diana was pronounced dead around 4am. The news stunned the whole world. Here's Bill Hoffman of the New York Post, who reported from London at the time. First thing I did was I walked over to uh, Buckingham Palace, which was just an absolute zoo, because I'd say practically every square inch of the gate around Buckingham Palace was covered with flowers and candles and pictures of Princess Diana, pictures of the royal family. People had written handwritten notes and poems and all sorts of uh, remembrances of Diana, what they liked about her. But it, it was a literally to between the gate and where you could stand because there was so much stuff on the ground. I'd say it was probably three or four feet because it was, there was just so much. And that was only the, the first night. That was the first night and it just kept getting progressively crazier from then. If the world was stunned, however, Britain went into a deep shock and a state of grief unlike anything the country had ever known before. It was extremely, extremely emotional. I think that of all the stories I've covered, I've never seen such a cross-section of people from, you know, the people that were like, they worked in delis or they drove trucks to people that were in high finance, like everyone was affected by it. I remember a particular one guy who was a, a lorry driver, a truck driver, and he had picked his mom up. I think they lived in Elephant and Castle or Bermondsey in South London. He had a heavy Cockney accent, and he was absolutely sobbing. And his mother had her arm around her son, and I went up and talked to them, and they were just saying, oh, she was such a wonderful, wonderful representative of Britain, and uh, it's the sort of person you wanted representing the representing the country and it's it's just horrible and uh it was very very touching yeah it really shook me a bit because we really showed you how much country was affected by this so how did the death of one woman come to have such a huge effect on the british people and as we shall see even threaten the very foundation of the monarchy itself to answer that, we need to look at how the world was introduced to Diana in the first place, as the blushing bride of Prince Charles, heir to the British throne, whom she married just a few weeks after her 20th birthday in July 1981. Here's Sally Oddness 
author of Royal Fever, the British Monarchy in Consumer Culture. So one of the things that we know fuels institutions, fuels brands, are sort of narratives, meta-narratives. Okay, what I mean by meta-narratives are narratives that really take over the brand and run through it for a very long time and that they kind of can spin themselves out sort of in repeated fashion. So one of the meta-narratives, it's not going to surprise you because you know this, of the royal family is the fairy tale wedding. So Prince Charles, you know, didn't get married till his mid-30s. Everybody's like, come on, dude. (laughs) get on with it. And when he picked this ingenue, essentially, who was very young, this became the big sensational sort of fairy tale story. The marriage was not to be a fairy tale story. Despite having two children together, princes William and Harry, Diana was desperately unhappy. She felt excluded from the firm. Charles was more than 10 years older than her. She didn't feel accepted by the family. She was incredibly lonely. She developed an eating disorder, and there were rumors of self-harming. Lady Colin Campbell, British socialite and author of Diana in Private, The Princess Nobody Knows. She had been very troubled emotionally and psychiatrically for some considerable length of time. She had a very troubled childhood because her parents had an extremely nasty and messy divorce. Her father was a wife beater, as indeed was her father's father. So violence ran in the Spencer family. And her mother ended up an alcoholic. I spoke to psychiatrists and psychologists about what I knew and some of whom actually knew her. And they all came to the conclusion that she was suffering from borderline personality disorder, which is a very difficult disorder to have and an equally disturbing and troubling disorder to have to live with. Chief architect of Diana's unhappiness, however, was one Camilla Parker Bowles, Charles's former girlfriend. As Diana came to realize, Despite her supposedly fairy tale marriage, that relationship had never really ended. Amongst those who knew the princess were her vocal coach, Stuart Pearce, and her personal protection officer, Ken Wharf. But of course, underlying all this, and the problem within that relationship, was of course the Prince of Wales' uh, relationship you know, with Camilla. Of course, sadly, as we now know, that Camilla was forever present throughout the, the short marriage time that Diana and the Prince of Wales had. The day that she was getting married, suddenly her sister said, but you know, Camilla's always going to be there. And that's why Diana felt totally thwarted. And in fact, in the moment, you know, during her last night of freedom, so to speak, at Clarence House, she was thinking of calling it all off. And that's when Sarah said to her, but you do realize that you're on drying up cloths and cups and mugs and all sorts of things. You can't do that now to the British people. And so Diana went through it. Diana, I think, naively believed that Camilla would go away, accepting that Prince of Wales throughout history had had their mistresses. Her husband was no exception. And I think that she believed that Camilla would become a thing of the past. And then there's the famous story, which I remember her telling me, of walking down the aisle with her father, who had not long ago had a stroke. And here he was, somehow able to walk down the aisle with her. And she noticed Camilla. 
And that's when suddenly her intuition realized that this woman is always going to be there. Among the more heartbreaking details of the Diana-Charles-Camilla love triangle was that Camilla was even present, in a sense, on Charles and Diana's honeymoon. So they're newlyweds. They're on their honeymoon. They're supposed to be madly in love. And he's wearing cufflinks that Camilla had given him, and the design is two C's intertwined for Charles and Camilla. Not only that, but he's also carrying around a photo of Camilla on his honeymoon. To be wearing an ex-girlfriend's cufflinks on your honeymoon, to carry around pictures of your ex-girlfriend in your diary on your honeymoon, that doesn't say that they ended their relationship to me. They might physically not be in bed together, but to me, my heart is broken on my honeymoon to know that my new husband, who I just married in front of millions of people and the world, is still carrying around photos and gifts of an ex. She was just dreaming and dreaming and dreaming and dreaming and dreaming and dreaming and dreaming that it would be successful. We have the hindsight of retrospect and we can see, oh my good, look at all the milestones that indicated it wasn't going to be. No, I mean, Diana was just simply, I, I love this man. I will continue, I will continue, I will continue. But isn't he seeing this woman? I will continue, I will, but he's seeing this woman. I will continue. Diabolical situation to be in. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Despite her desperate unhappiness, Diana's popularity with the people not only remained undimmed, but reached new heights, something the future king had difficulty coping with. In 1983, when the Prince of Wales and Diana took William to Australia on an overseas tour, and the Prince of Wales expected this was his show, which of course he was right to think that, but of course the entire crowd, the, the press coverage, etc., concentrated solely on Diana. And it was because of her popularity. And what happened, of course, the royal family have a problem in dealing with popularity. Instead of embracing it and bringing it on board as, as a sort of key piece of ammunition to take them further forward, they sort of rather pushed it away, which is rather sad. He just did not understand the public's interest in this young girl who I think he considered shallow and vapid. And I think that... There was a lot of jealousy there for him to see that the public wanted her and that they admired her. And it was because she had that sincere, compassionate element to her personality that he lacks. And there's that famous speech with the Prince of Wales when in Sydney, I think it was, during that tour. And uh, he uh, laughed at it and whether he, he meant it, but I think he probably did. He said, well, you know, next time I come, I'll, I'll bring two wives and I'll put one either side and I'll just walk down the middle. So even he had recognized just how popular his wife was. And I suppose really it must have been very difficult for him there. But this is the way Diana was and, and she was certainly was never going to change that. 
Finally, as Diana herself embarked on a string of affairs, the marriage broke down completely. In 1996, the fairy tale ended in a divorce that was every bit as compelling as the wedding had been. So, the reason that we were all so compelled by this whole divorce saga was because everybody had emotionally invested so much into this perfect wedding. This dream, I think one of the reasons people reacted so strongly to Diana's death as the people's princess was that she had also suffered a bad marriage and went through some things like her bulimia, etc. people could relate to. Charles and Diana's divorce was finalized August 28, 1996, almost exactly 15 years after their wedding day. But if the palace hoped this would put an end to Diana's increasing popularity and Charles's corresponding unpopularity, they could not have been more wrong. Forbidden from being known as Princess Diana, strict royal protocol meant she had to use the more awkward Diana, Princess of Wales instead. Diana rose above both titles to become something else entirely. The People's Princess. With such a beloved character and such a human character compared to the stuffed shirts of the royal family, she struck a real chord among the common person and uh, in every, every wake of society. Diana started to bring a different brand into royalty. Gone was the difference, you know, when you only sort of met royals on functions, on state occasions, or when you met them in the street, it was a, a shake hand and a push back and don't say anything. Say ma'am or nod or bow your head. Diana dismissed that formality. Because her style was so immediate and so authentic, whereas what had been presented before in the royal personage was something that was withdrawn and held back and full of mystique, so therefore emotionally withdrawn. And what Diana was all about is really love is all there is. Do as you would be done by. Let's simply be ordinary in this situation. She was somebody that when she spoke to somebody, always asked them what their first name was and would engage them in a conversation that made it easier for them. For example, I love the color of your dress. I like the jacket you're wearing. Where did you get your hair cut? And these people think, hang on a minute, I never expected that. So there's this interaction and this style of discussion that beforehand we'd never seen it. And such was the popularity. Diana also took up causes that were close to her heart, such as campaigning against the use of landmines and raising awareness of AIDS charities. When Diana was trying to choose what causes to pursue, there was a lot of stress amongst the royal family because they weren't necessarily causes that were glamorous or that the royal family wanted to be associated with. When it comes to AIDS, at the time that Diana decided that she wanted to go headfirst in that direction, people were really fearful of AIDS. There was very little information on it. I mean, it was to the point where people were afraid to touch AIDS patients. They were afraid to hug them. They were afraid to even be in the same room with them. That's how fearful they were. And Princess Diana was one of the first people to be seen publicly embracing AIDS patients, sitting down for hours with them, talking to them, photographed holding their hands. And the Queen saying to Diana, why are you getting involved with something like this? Why didn't you do something nice? Diana had moved on from the How to Be a Good Princess when she came in 1981. She'd shut that book. I'm going to do it my way. And this is exactly what she did. 
Now, the establishment felt this was really threatening. She was being criticized by the establishment, not by the people of the world, but by the establishment. Stuart Pearce, who through his vocal coaching with Diana grew close to the princess, remembers one touching instance of her desire to shrug off the stuffiness of the firm and simply be an ordinary 30-something woman in London. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember it started because after a session one day she said, what if we get social? And I said, what if we get social? What do you mean? Well, should we do something social? And I said, of course, what would you like to do? She said, I'd love to go to the movies. Should we go to the movies? And I said, yeah, okay, what do you want to see? And she said, I'd love to see Jerry Maguire. And I said, well, you know that it's playing at the movie theater that's just 10 minutes away from Kensington Palace. We call it KP. And, uh, and she said, let's go, let's go. And I said, how can we? And she said, no, I'm going to be incognito. Meet me at the end of the drive at, at seven o'clock, whatever, on Thursday evening. You won't recognize me, but you will recognize me. And I said, what does that mean? She said, I'll be incognito. So I arrived excitedly to be with her because I loved her dearly. She was such fun to be with. And we, we just got on like a house on fire. And there was this person standing there with this trench coat, a Burberry trench coat, and a blonde wig and sunglasses. It was early fall, you know, so it was almost dark. And I went up to her and she just went, and then we walked away. It was such fun. She was just so wonderfully ordinary, do you see? This was the great thing about her. And then, of course, she put on a bit of lippy, as she said, and her hair would be done and a gown, and she'd go off and be absolutely extraordinary. If Diana's natural empathy and common touch had seen her become the people's princess, for some that placed her in a position opposed to the very institution she had married into. For them, she was not only out of the firm, she was against the firm. As Kinsey Schofield explains, Diana herself, by this time so famous her every move was front page news, was not above exploiting this power. She started to quietly make friends with people that were covering the royal family. She wanted to make sure her story was told because she felt kind of similar to Harry and Meghan, like people at the palace were leaking negative stories against her to ensure that she looked bad. And she started talking to them about Prince Charles's affair with Camilla and leaking stories quietly and strategically really to take the pressure off of her because the stories that were coming out were so negative and she felt like they were so untrue and she thought it was the palace's way of controlling her but she was hip she was chic she was the ultimate it girl she went through some public humiliation and instead of crawling in a hole and just being the woman that birthed the future king and just being utilized for her body in that role she decided to make something else of herself. And then, at the height of her fame, just one year on from her divorce, and it seems finally happy, tragedy struck. We have reports from Paris that Diana, Princess of Wales, has been killed in a car accident and that her partner, Dodie Fired, has also been killed. They were apparently being pursued by paparazzi on two motorcycles. But as the world reeled and the crowds gathered in London, the royal family themselves remained strangely quiet. The palace went dark when Princess Diana died, leaving the public 
feeling lost and defeated. The Queen, along with Princes William and Harry, was in her Scottish residence in Balmoral at the time, and there she stayed. So the Queen goes to Scotland for a good part of several months during the year. Then suddenly something goes horribly wrong in the middle of their vacation to Balmoral, and they're asked to come down. Well, it took some time to persuade the Queen to return to London. And they did come back to London immediately and address the public because the Queen said, my first priority is to make sure William and Harry, you know, I want to console my grandchildren. And it was effectively the Prime Minister's wish and instruction through the Queen's private office to persuade the Queen to return to London because of the, the outcry from the public at large who were, in essence, demanding the Queen return. No response, okay? So this felt very cold, distant, and disrespectful to Diana. Royal biographer Jane Dismore. I sometimes do wonder about the advice that she and other members of the royal family are given. Sometimes I don't think their PR machine, if you like, works particularly well. Sometimes you think, why was she advised in that way? I mean, I think sometimes she misreads, she misreads or has in the past, perhaps not now, has misread the situation. The, the classic example is when Diana was killed and she didn't come down to the palace. People were laying wreaths outside Kensington Palace and she was still away looking after the princes. I mean, they had just lost their mother. And she was doing her thing there. It was not only the Queen's reluctance to return to London that confused the British public. The people wanted to know why the flags above Buckingham Palace were not being flown at half-mast. The story that developed right away, I found, was sort of like the cold-heartedness, if I can say, of the royal family in the beginning. Because uh, what's the first thing you really want to do when someone in the family dies and you're ahead of state, of course, you're going to fly the flag at half mast. So there was a Union Jack up there, up on top, just sitting there waving away. And uh, people were like, why don't they lower to half mast? Why don't they do this? So, you know, the monarchy is steeped with tradition. They have these rules that date back hundreds of years about a lot of things. You don't fly the royal standard, the queen's flag, unless the queen is at home. And you don't fly a flag because someone's died if it's not the queen. That's the rule that the monarchy kind of um, followed. Like, okay, well, why would we put a flag up? Because, you know, we only do this in certain cases. But the British public wanted the symbolism. They wanted the acknowledgement that, you know, something momentous had happened. It was a very, very easy thing they could have done. And it was very, very, like, simple. No sweat, no controversy. And they, yet it took them four or five days before they actually did it. And that got a lot of people just absolutely furious. They couldn't believe, you know, why the queen wasn't out there herself <laughs> with the ropes, you know, getting that taken care of. The public felt excluded. And because the public didn't see or hear from the palace, the public felt like the palace wasn't grieving and they were irate. The royal family had uh, definitely dropped the ball on this, and it was not only picked up by 
us that they dropped the ball, but some of Diana's side, like uh, Diana's brother uh, Earl Spencer, was really, really angry about the whole thing, and uh, some other people. So the、uh, royal family started getting a lot of flack from everyone. Within days, that disbelief had turned into anger. The public felt excluded, and because the public didn't see or hear from the palace, the public felt like the palace wasn't grieving, and they were irate. The royal family had、uh, definitely dropped the ball on this, and it was not only picked up by us that they dropped the ball, but some of Diana's side, like、uh, Diana's brother、uh, Earl Spencer, was. Really, really angry about the whole thing, and、uh, some other people. So the、uh, royal family started getting a lot of flack from everyone. Most extraordinarily of all, that anger began to boil over into whispers that perhaps the firm themselves had had something to do with her death. Kinsey Schofield and Bill Hoffman explain. None of us could believe that Princess Diana and Dodie died the way they did, and when they did, and and. How quickly they went from, you know, hot new couple to gone. So yes, people did consume and become obsessed with conspiracy theories around their death. I see it to this day. I argue with my family members about it. I do. I have family members that say that the British government or the royal family took Princess Diana from us. In the beginning. It was just kind of a suggestion that, well, you know, there's more than meets the eye. Of someone going through the tunnel at the same time saw a bright flash of light, which they think might have blinded the driver, and various theories like that back and forth. So, you know, these little things came in, and it made you think that maybe there was more than you knew. You know, maybe something had happened. People still believe that she was taken from the world because she did not follow the rules. Silky, smooth, sustainable—so much more than soap. Purple Swan is the nourishing, exfoliating soap your body needs at prices that your wallet will love. Try the relaxing oak lavender, soothing vanilla coconut, or refreshing sweet lily—all made from organic essential oils with a loofah right inside. Subscribe now for even better savings at PurpleSwanShop.com. Vaping is so 2015. If you're craving the calming release of CBD aromatherapy, try Lou instead. With a sleek design, lab-tested product, and delicious aroma, Lou fits perfectly in your life and your pocket. Best of all, it won't torch your lungs with chemicals. Pick up a starter kit to sample all of our great flavors, or buy individual packs of pineapple, peach, orange, mocha, and more. It's all waiting for you at getmylou.com. That's getmylou.com. Lou. Satisfaction begins here. Chief amongst those claiming the People's Princess had been subject of a clandestine firm hit job was Mohammed Al Fayed, father of Dodi. Dodi Fayed's father, Mohammed Al Fayed, was under the impression, and I would honestly argue is probably still under the impression, that Princess Diana and Dodi were killed intentionally. Well, one, he was an angry man. I mean, you've got to remember, obviously, his son Dodi Fayed died in this accident. It wasn't just Princess Diana, but he he was blaming Prince Philip. He also blamed the British secret services, MI5, MI6. 
I think Muhammad al-Fayed's own opinion was, yes, there was a conspiracy. His son and Diana were rubbed out. They were chased. They, their car was crashed deliberately. And uh, it was done by a group of people who were there to kill Diana, to get rid of her, to keep any sort of scandal that they might have felt was going on with Diana out of the picture. And so he went balls to the walls to anybody that would talk to him, anybody that would listen, and repeated this conspiracy theory. So I feel for him, but he probably, I would argue to this day, will tell you he believes that Princess Diana and Dodi Fayed were purposely killed in that tunnel. Could Diana really have been assassinated under the orders of the British establishment, either for proving too much of a thorn in the monarchy's side or for her relationship with Dodi Fayed? Royal reporters Richard Menards and Richard Fitzwilliams believe the idea to be ridiculous. Henri Paul, the driver, who was not meant to be working that night and had been on medication, he'd also been drinking, and you put that into place where he's going at great speed to avoid the paparazzi, unnecessarily, I think, and he's going through a tunnel, which is a 30 mile per hour speed limit at 100 miles per hour, and then you've got to remember Diana was not wearing a seatbelt, and the only man who was wearing a seatbelt, Trevor Reese Jones, was the only one who survived, because you hit a, a cement pillar at 100 miles per hour, and the inevitable happened. Diana died because a drunk driver, who was also on drugs, was speeding, and tragically she didn't wear a seatbelt or have a royal minder. I think the accident was really that, not sabotage by anybody, particularly the royal family. Nevertheless, revolution was in the air. It's probably one of the first and only times in the Queen's long reign that people turned against the Queen and started to criticize her in public, which is completely unheard of, but started to criticize her on television. You know, and it wasn't just one voice. You're looking at hundreds of people that are getting in front of a television with a microphone in their hand saying, where are you? Where are you? I'm Thomas Mace Mills, and I have been the founder of the British Monarchist Society since inception roughly 15 years ago. When Diana, Princess of Wales, died, we were looking at the biggest existential crises facing the monarchy since the abdication crisis of 1936. And that was really something because people wanted to say the Queen was just horrible. People were aghast at her real statements and these sorts of things. I don't think they expected the outpour of devastation that they received. Keep in mind, too, they're so far away. They're on their own little space. They have no idea what's going on at Kensington. They have no idea what's going on at Buckingham Palace. They're trying to keep the televisions off. Now they turn the televisions on. They see the sea of flowers. They see people irate at them, and they realize we've made a horrible decision. It was an unprecedented crisis for the Queen and for the firm itself. And at this moment of grave danger, the monarch finally stepped up to the plate. Well, I, I think it was about, uh, I'd say, six or seven days. There was a point at which the Queen 
put out through her uh, royal flax that uh, she was going to make a little speech about uh, Princess Diana, and so she went on national TV on the BBC and Channel Four and all that, and talked for I guess five minutes, ten minutes, just about Diana and how shocked and how just awfully sad they were about what had happened. This is BBC One. Now we go live to Buckingham Palace for a tribute from Her Majesty the Queen. Since last Sunday's dreadful news, we have seen throughout Britain and around the world an overwhelming expression of sadness at Diana's death. No one who knew Diana will ever forget her. Millions of others who never met her, but felt they knew her, will remember her. I, for one, believe there are lessons to be drawn from her life and from the extraordinary and moving reaction to her death. The Queen's speech was a masterclass in addressing the nation at a time of crisis. Executive editor of TheRoyalObserver.com, Jacqueline Roth, explains. She got it exactly right. Sad, dignified, humble, empathetic, and she also let it be known that the reason she hadn't returned to London sooner was because she was trying to shield William and Harry from the news. She suspended. The only time in her life she has suspended being the Queen was to take care of those two boys because their mother had died, and the world went after her for that. Her silence wasn't the crown being quiet. Her silence was Elizabeth, the grandmother, taking care of her family first. But would it be enough? With the nation all but ground to a halt, Mohammed al-Fayed publicly decrying Prince Philip as a murderer, and thousands of people on the streets demanding answers, the firm's position was still precarious. A line needed to be drawn under the affair, and royal authority needed to be reasserted. The royal family took control of the funeral and turned it into the biggest expression of public emotion the country had seen since VE Day in 1945. They actually made what could have been a dangerous occasion for them into a kind of celebration of the monarchy itself. Once they realized the impact Princess Diana had on not just their country but the world, everything changed and they had to change their agenda for the funeral and they realized that they were going to have to put themselves out there a little bit more and you know their mantra never complain never explain they were going to have to show a little bit more emotion than they were used to because diana meant the world to people Diana's former bodyguard, Ken Wharf was responsible for internal security at Westminster Abbey for the funeral. I've never, ever seen crowds that line the streets of London as many as they did on the day that Diana died. Now, you have to ask the people why they did that, but they did it because they wanted to. People traveled the length and breadth of the country with, you know, little money to do it because they found that's what I wanted to do. That was the impact that this woman had on the British public. Well, the funeral, they had a route which uh, went along about three streets, three long streets in London. They went from Buckingham Palace to Kensington to the church where the funeral was. I was on the street mid the tens of thousands of people who were just getting a glimpse of the horse-drawn carriage with the casket in it. It was very, very moving. Uh, people were just sob. People were like sobbing. A couple people passed out on the side of the road, just because they were so 
overwhelmed by it. It was quite a sight. Diana, Princess of Wales, was the most incendiary thing to have happened to the monarchy since the abdication of Edward VIII. If her immense popularity was deeply unsettling for the firm old guard, her sudden, shocking death became the catalyst for an unprecedented outcry against the royal family itself. This was also a pivotal moment when the royal family realized they had a big connectivity gap with the public and that they needed to work on, for lack of a better term, branding themselves more effectively to uh, retain their relevance and their visibility. Because yes, this was a big PR disaster. And I think the Queen was absolutely just gobsmacked, if you will. The British public wants them to be more human and wants them to be one of them, <laughs> wants them to be someone they could speak with. And they don't mind the pomp and circumstance. They don't mind all the uh, the flowery sort of like processions and all of the ceremonies. That's fine, but at least come off as a little bit human, which in the first week of uh, what was going on there was not coming through at all. And people were angry. I don't think it's, it's going to destroy the monarchy, but boy, it shook it. I think I think it shook them quite a bit. And as Thomas Mace Archer Mills explains, such was the outcry that the firm did what the firm never do. They backed down. I am still very confused as to what happened in late August of, of 1997 into September because it wasn't very British at all. And this is where the Crown absolutely did a 180 and rebranded and repackaged. And the Queen conceded. The legacy of Princess Diana remains in the devotion so many people around the world still have to her memory. It remains in the charities and foundations she set up, but also, perhaps more powerfully, it remains in the very institution that rejected her, but that she, ultimately, changed forever. The whole point is, Diana is still as popular today as she was when she was alive, and seriously because people are interested in a woman that that actually did change the face of the British monarchy, whether we like it or not. And, you know, even her ex-husband now talks about a new beginning, a way of restructuring it. So as long as that happens, people always identify any changes, particularly when they look at the her two sons, William and Harry, is the impact that Diana had on in moving the royal family into the 21st century. Next time on The Firm, Blood, Lies and Royal Succession. She's the one person that Prince Philip would not have anything to do with. She hadn't an idea what being royal really meant. If she had, she wouldn't have behaved as she did. You never knew what was going to appear in the Sunday papers every week. Was it going to be new photographs? Was it going to be new accusations? Fergie, downfall of a duchess. Sarah Ferguson's idea of being royal was best summed up by one of the courtiers who said, vulgar, vulgar, vulgar. The Firm, Blood, Lies and Royal Succession is a production of Audology, a division of Empire Media Group. The series is hosted by me, Jonathan Locke. Executive producers are Dylan Howard and Melissa Cronin. 
The series is written by Dominic Utten, reporting by Douglas Montero, mixing and sound design by Sean Kravitz. Please subscribe to The Firm wherever you get your podcasts, and if you like what you hear, leave us a rating, review, and tell your friends. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.